You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. Today's episode is about sudden unexpected death in epilepsy and it's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Athanasios Gatatsis, who is a consultant neurologist and epileptologist at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital. Welcome Athanasios. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you explain to us what SUDEP, or Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy, is, Athanasios? Well, SUDEP is a phenomenon, actually. It is a sudden unexpected death occurring in someone who has epilepsy, and refers to death in a patient that is not due to trauma, drowning, status epilepticus, or other known cause, but for which there is often evidence of an associated seizure. It occurs in benign conditions, so, by inference, there is no other better explanation for the cause of death. If there is an autopsy, which confirms that there is no other cause of death, then the pseudep is definite. If there is no autopsy, then the pseudep is probable. And there are circumstances where there are other competing causes, where we're not sure that it's possible. And there are times where we suspect there is a strong suspicion that there may be another cause co- co- contributing, like arrhythmia, for example, in which case it becomes sudden plus. Mm-hmm. We'll talk now about the demography of SUDEP. I mean, it's, it's not a really, really common condition, but it's a significant condition that affects a reasonable amount of people in, in Australia. It is, it is rare, uh, which is good, but it's, it's, of course, a fatal phenomenon and it's preventable to, to a large extent. So in adults, the average risk in the population of people with epilepsy is 1.2 per thousand, so roughly is 1 per thousand people per year. Now, in children, it's much lower. It's around 1 per 4.5 thousand, although recent research suggests that the risk is closer to the risk in adults. Now, the risk increases according to the severity of, of epilepsy. For example, for someone who attends an already an epilepsy clinic, the risk is around 1 per 500 per year. For someone who has epilepsy, usually with intellectual disability or they live in a residential care, the risk is 1 per 300. If you have drug-resistant epilepsy, which means that you need at least two to try two different anti-epileptic drugs uh, in order to control your epilepsy, if your epilepsy is not controlled, then the risk is 1 in 200. And if you are a candidate for epilepsy surgery, uh, then the risk is 1 per 100 per year, so it's quite high. It's not a, an extremely rare event in that case, I guess. So, you know, 1 in 100 to 1 in 200, or, you know, many of us in general practice would have a number of patients that fit into this risk category, so it's really worth thinking about, isn't it? Exactly, yes. And especially the risk is cumulative, it's not just one off. Yeah. So it, it accumulates over the years. So as an example, if we have, um, let's say, maybe an extreme scenario where someone has childhood onset epilepsy that is refractory and continues in, the, in adulthood, then the cumulative risk of SUDEP in this particular group is about 8% by the age of 70 years. Yes. So it's quite a fairly high risk. Yeah. So what do we know about who is high and who is low risk of SUDEP, Athanasios? So, if you look at the demography again, we see that 75% of cases occur in the group between 20 to 50 years, and more so in the group between 20 to 40 years, so it's the younger adult age group, and uh, maybe even up to two-thirds of these cases are men, so Mm -hmm. men seem to be more at risk for suited. Around two-thirds of cases have focal onset epilepsy, 
what we used to call to be called in the past partial, yeah. and the rest of them, the one third, have a generalized epilepsy. The important thing to note is that it can affect any type of epilepsy from, let's say, benign types that start in childhood and they're supposed to remit, and from the intractable epileptic encephalopathy, so the more severe types of epilepsy. Now, another way to look into risk is to look at the circumstances of death. So, if we study the group of people who were found dead and they were diagnosed with shooter, how these people died or where they found, so 90% of cases died at home and 70% of all cases were living alone. The great majority of these people, up to 70%, were found in bed and again most of them were found in the prone position which raises the suspicion that they may have suffocated, yeah. or at least some of them. Now, again, the great majority of cases, the death was unwitnessed. 8 or 9 out of 10 cases were not, there was no witness at all. But even in the majority of these cases, there was some indirect indication that there has been a seizure. For example, they were found with a bitten tongue. There, there was evidence of urinary incontinence. The posturing when they were found was consistent that they may have, have had a seizure, or they found secretions in the bed or in the pillow or in the mouth. Now, in the 10% or so of cases that then was witnessed, Again, the great majority there was a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. And, but there have been a few cases, like in 5 to 10% of cases that the event was witnessed, there was no definite evidence there was a seizure. So it is the, the, the mechanism or exactly what caused it remains uncertain. So basically, going through this data, it becomes obvious that should the cases largely live alone, they die unwitnessed at home, at night, in their bed, usually in the prone position and with indication of having suffered a seizure. The other interesting thing is that 30 to 40% of these cases, after they died, it was found that they took the medication, which means that probably the majority of cases who died had not taken the last dose of the anti-epileptic drug. And it's also interesting to know that only 15% were seizure-free the year before their death. Here I, have to, I would like to clarify something. When we talk about generalized tonic-clonic seizure, which is the highest risk factor for SUDEP, we're talking about primarily generalized or secondarily generalized. Now, with the new terminology, these are called focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. But the bottom line is that even if the seizures start primarily as a generalized following a focal onset, the risk is exactly the same. So, if you go into the risk with regards to the generalized tonic-clonic seizures, the risk is 10 times higher for anybody who has generalized tonic-clonic compared to someone who doesn't have them. The more frequent the seizures, the higher the risk, and the lack of seizure freedom in the previous 1-5 to five years is also increases your risk, and not having inadequate anti-epileptic medication increases your risk. For example, if you, say, take one drug and you still have seizures and you don't add a second drug, that will increase your risk because obviously your seizures are uncontrolled. But there are factors that we need to have in our mind that protect you, so they decrease their risk. These factors are nocturnal supervision, so if, let's say if you have a bed partner, for example, mm -hmm. and all use of a nocturnal listening device, so let's say you're a child, yeah. You sleep in your room, your parents are in the next room, but there is a listening device or maybe a video. Yeah. They would be able to listen or identify that you have a seizure and then be able to come and protect you. So, as I discussed before, 
anybody with any type of seizure is, is at right. risk. However, there is, uh, as I said, higher for general astrochronic seizure, and there's not be increased risk if you have a focal seizure, for example, apart from the risk of injury. Now, if you take people who don't have generalized tonic-clonic seizures and they share a bedroom with someone, if we take this as a baseline group and then we compare everybody next to them, if you take people who don't have generalized tonic-clonic seizures but they don't share the bedroom with anyone so they are alone, there is still a risk of pseudobuja three times higher. Mm. If you take people who have generalized tonic-clonic seizures and they still share a bedroom, the risk is 18 to 19 times higher. Wow. And if you take people who have general chronic seizures and sleep alone without any, any supervision of a partner or anyone, their the risk is 67 times higher compared to someone who has focal seizures that don't generalize and they live with a bad partner. So that's a, a really significant thing. It's people who do not cohabitate with someone, people who have generalized seizures, and also, I guess, people who have frequent seizures, people who aren't well-controlled. Uh, that are really the high-risk ones. This is exactly the case, yes. Mm. But it can happen very rarely, thankfully, to people who are reasonably controlled yeah. as well. So it's important to have this in mind. Now, can we talk about children here? Because I guess this is an area of concern for parents, of, in particular children with epilepsy. So let's sort of talk about what the risk is with children with SUDEP and whether seizures without epilepsy presents any risk in particular. Yeah, so as, as I mentioned earlier, the risk is significantly lower. This is around 0.2 per thousand. Although there is a recent study where they calculated that the risk is very similar to adults. So we need to see if there is more research that clarifies issues in the, in the future. I think what is important to know, as in adults, the more severe the epilepsy in childhood, the higher the risk of pseudo. And there are specific epilepsy types of syndromes in childhood, such as Dravet syndrome. I think people with tuberous sclerosis because they tend to have refractory intractable epilepsy and um, people with other genetic conditions such as uh, duplication of chromosome 15, they're really at very high risk of pseudep and of course the adequate treatment of their epilepsy and access to a specialist like a pediatric neurologist is very important. What about febrile seizures, Dr. Matthews? Yes, this is an interesting question actually. Um, Fibrile seizures generally, especially in particular the simple ones, let's say a kid between the age of six months to five years has a generalized convulsion that lasts less than 10 minutes in the context of a high rising temperature, the mortality is not increased and there is no evidence in the literature that having a simple fibrile seizure has been associated with sudden death. Of course, here it's important to know that fibrile seizure is not an epileptic seizure by definition, it's a provoked seizure. But of course, as you know, people with febrile seizures, they are at risk as anybody else of developing epilepsy later on. Mm. And this is especially the case with so-called complex partial seizures. So seizures that febrile seizures that last more than 10-15 minutes or they have a focal phenomena like more or less one half of the body, seizures run around the whole body. And in these cases, again, there is no evidence that any of these cases will lead to sudden unexpected death. But in particular, in the case of complex febrile seizures, we know from epidemiological studies that in general, the risk of death is higher in, in the long term. Yeah. I think what is perhaps protective in children is that they're under parental supervision. Super so if you, if you have a toddler and obviously you live with your family, you have your parents, if you have a temperature, somebody's going to look after you. So if you have a seizure, 99, 90% of the time, somebody's going there to, to, to help you. And, take it to hospital. Mm. And just to go off topic a little bit, what about petit mal seizures? Because we'll, we'll often see children who have 
relatively frequent peritoneal seizures. Is there an increased risk there? No, this is of course a generalized seizure, but it's not a convulsive seizure, and, and of course there is activity arrest, and there is no loss of posture, so there is no risk of injury, unless if it happens, let's say, when you're crossing the street, mm -hmm. but for this age group, most events occur in school, so again, there is some kind of supervision, yeah. and uh, there is no evidence that uh, they are associated with high risk of sudden unexpected death. Right. What can we do to modify the risk of pseudoaphanosis? Well, again, if you think of the major risks, if we start from there, we, we know that individuals who have generalized chronic seizures, who sleep alone, have a dramatically increased risk of SUDEP. And actually, uh, one study found that 69% of SUDEP cases in patients who have generalized chronic seizures and live alone could be prevented, theoretically, if the patients were attended at night and if they were free from generalized chronic seizures. So this is the baseline of risk modification and trying to decrease the risk of these people suffering death. Again, using anti-epileptic drug treatment to stop the seizures or to make somebody seizure-free, or at least converting a focal seizure that generalizes just to focal, so it would be a non-convulsive seizure, or even reduce the severity of the seizures, so reduce the frequency of the seizures and reduce the duration of the seizures. And also find a way to somehow protect the patient, either by offering some supervision and first aid if the event is, is, is witnessed. I think the most important thing, of course, is that there needs to be awareness in, in the lay public and also among the health professionals, because I think there is not so much awareness out there. I think if we take the patients, for example, I mean, the patients need to, to know about it and they need to educate themselves. For example, there are wonderful organizations here in Australia, like Epilepsy Action Australia and the Epilepsy Association, of which there is a branch here in WA that do a wonderful job. And of course, there are now wearable devices that can people use to let other people know they have a seizure. They need to discuss preventive measures, such as using, for example, where appropriate a listening device or inform their loved ones to be able to perform some kind of first aid. The patients need to monitor the seizures, so when they go to visit the doctor, they need to say, yeah, look, I had a, a, a seizure and it was like a tonic-clonic seizure, it was a focal seizure and I have so many in a year or in a month. They need to follow medical advice, so they need to take the medication as advice by the, by the doctor. And of course, importantly, they should avoid triggers, such as forgetting to take the tablets, make sure they have enough sleep and avoid excess alcohol and not use illicit drugs. Now, if we take the healthcare professionals, of course, our role is to minimize this risk. And so the neurologist, for example, has to make sure that people take the appropriate anti-epileptic drug for the type of epilepsy they have. So a diagnosis is important. Of course, we need to make sure that the anti-epileptic drug treatment is optimal. And in case it's not optimal, it needs to be optimized. So we need to add, a for example, a second medication or change the medication to something else that is more effective and is better tolerated. Or it's just a matter of increasing the dose. If it's a matter of a GP, for example, or a general neurologist, and they think that they cannot deal with the particular case of epilepsy, then they have to refer to an epilepsy specialist for consideration of other things, for example, epilepsy surgery or vagal nerve stimulator. And of course, it's our role as professionals to educate the patients and the families because they need to understand what are the risks and how they can avoid them. And again, we need to inform them that, you know, the, the carers have to be able to perform some first aid, I think it is important if you find someone who has had a seizure, you need to make sure they're safe, you have to position them, you have to stimulate them so they start breathing again. 
And of course, the issue of the nocturnal supervision is a tricky one because, of course, if you're a child, then perhaps you can sleep with your parent in the same room, but if you're an adolescent, you can't, mm -hmm. really, so it's a different issue. If you are an adult and you're married, then you have a bed partner, but a lot of people live alone, so it's not always straightforward, but there, there can be solutions, and this needs to be discussed with the patients and the carers. Yeah, lots to think about there. So what do you think GPs can do to help patients understand and reduce their risks of, of pseudoathanasios? I think that GPs have a great opportunity to, to help here because they see the patients very often and also they know the families very well. So they know the personal circumstances of the patient much better than, than the specialists do because we tend to see people less often. And of course, everybody's pressed with time, but perhaps GPs have a, an opportunity to have a talk. Make sure, you know, people, do they take the medications? Do they follow medical advice? Do they still have seizures? Or how bad the seizures are? Or do the seizures occur at night? Or, or not? And, and have they had any injury or any accidents, you know? We need to, and the GPs can ask the patients what are the triggers? So, and how, obviously, advice how they can avoid them. I mean, the typical scenario is like a young adult, typically after adolescence, where they go out and party, they drink, sometimes they take drugs, and they end up with seizures. Mm -hmm. In this case, just a lifestyle modification would be probably enough. I guess another issue is to, I guess, important to avoid alcohol and drugs, because this also affects medication adherence. And also manage the comorbidities because if you, let's say, you are diabetic and you are at risk of hypoglycemia, for example, or if you have a heart condition, so you have a, your risk of a cardiac arrhythmia, then this is really important to know and to manage because it can contribute to your risk of death in general. I think of the patients that I have that are at risk, and they're, they're really hard to get through to because, you know, as you say, they're young people and they're sort of at that risk-taking age. They often don't come even to the general practitioner a lot, which is what's tricky. So you've really got to make the most of it and really try and talk to them about the significant risk and the consequences. Because, you know, particularly if you look at that group, you know, say young men who live alone, who, you know, aren't good at taking their medicine, so they're getting uncontrolled seizures and they're at high risk of drinking and, as you say, going out and partying. They're the ones that we've really got to hone in on and, and try and sort of think about, well, what can we do to mitigate some of that risk? Yeah, I, th I think we need to stress to the patients and the, and the families that, you know, the risk is real. And, of course, it's rare, but it could, it could, it could happen to, to anyone and it could, it could happen to them. And then the families uh, will come back and say, oh, we didn't know. Hmm. So that's why education is important. People need to know. And people, I think, prefer to know that something terrible as, like that can happen, even, even if the risk is really low. Yeah. But it's, I think it's better to know than not to know. And I, I think some of it is in teenage and uh, young adult patients is preparing them for the phases of life that are ahead because you know, we're often looking after these people over many years. So you know, starting to talk to them relatively early on as, as teenagers and explain, look, you're going into a risk-taking phase where people do silly things. Let's actually start thinking about how do we protect you. So that's a really important approach for people who are involved in, in their care on a long-term basis. Yeah, this is exactly the case, and, and perhaps it's an opportunity to speak people a bit more often, I guess, and maybe also see them with a family member. Not that it's easier said than done, I guess, but it is important to try to do our best. And I think another way, especially in this group, is, uh, for example, when they run out of tablets, just to be able, if they call and ask for an appointment, just to offer them an early appointment so as they don't 
stop taking the medications. Yeah. That, that, that would be very important. Ensuring compliance. So, Athanasius, you did mention one really useful tool which is available through Epilepsy Action Australia, and that's a, a SUDEP sort of assessment tool, which is a checklist more than anything, yes. isn't it? Um, so, if you type into your search engine SUDEP and Epilepsy Action Australia, that'll take you to some information about SUDEP. And if you then go on to contact Epilepsy Action Australia, they'll actually send you a copy for free of this checklist, which actually is excellent and a really good way of really working out people's risk and showing people their risk of SUDEP. And I, I would really thoroughly recommend having a look at that if you're, uh, if you're interested. So this is not just about SUDEP, it's called SUDEP and Seizure Safety Checklist and it has all the important components for management of epilepsy. For example, if somebody has active seizures, if they have generalized uniclonic seizures, if they have seizures that occur at night, if there's any nighttime supervision, it has a question about medication adherence, alcohol, substance abuse, depression, etc. So it is a very straightforward list. You can just tick a yes or a no. This is very straightforward. And based on that, then you can modify your, your advice and counseling to the patient. I mentioned that apart from the Epilepsy Action, there is the Epilepsy Association of WA. As they are based here in WA, but of course they have branches in every other territory. state. Yeah. They also have a lot of information, material, uh, videos. Uh, they can uh, also, both organizations can provide telephone advice to patients and care professionals. And at least for here at WA, Epilepsy Association has a display of seizure alert technology. So you can go to their office. They have a, a collection of these uh, sort of different devices and uh, smartphone applications to show you how and advise you how you can use them and how they suit your needs. Brilliant. Look, that's very, very helpful. Thank you for your time and uh, thanks for recording the episode today, Athanasios. It was a pleasure.